Romans 5, 15 through 21 is our text for today. This is the 29th sermon in a series through the New Testament book of Romans. The book of Romans was written by a missionary. And in part, the purpose for the book of Romans was Paul raising money in order to go on a missionary journey to Spain. Uh, the heart of God is missions, and so you yourself should seriously consider whether or not God is calling you to become a missionary. And if he is not, it is most certainly your duty to help send others to the mission field and to support them. One of the ways that you can do that all year long, but especially in this Christmas season, would be to communicate with our missionaries, to send them a note or an email, perhaps a gift, some sort of encouragement. They would love to hear from you. That's one way that you can help to be a sender of missionaries. Uh, today's message is 24 handwritten pages. Before you get excited and start to rejoice, please know that I purchased this notebook in England and the pages are really long. So we're going to be here for a while. 24 handwritten pages and the title is Just Like Adam, Only Different. So please turn to Romans chapter 5. As you do, please remember that God loves you. Listen as I read not only our text for today, but to add a little bit of context to the text. I'm going to start at verse 12, and we're going to read Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, uh, for indeed, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now our text for today. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the, for the judgment following one tra trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our Father in heaven, as we today consider the damage that was done by Adam, 
Lord, may we mourn and grieve. But Lord, today I pray that ultimately we will not leave this place mourning and grieving, but Lord, I would ask that we would leave this place rejoicing because of what has been done by Jesus Christ to not only overcome what Adam has done, but to superabundantly overcome what Adam has done. And so, Lord, today, at the end of this, may we see the glory of your Son, who is our great Savior, and in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. For me, this passage of Scripture is paradoxical. It is enigmatic. It is a bit of a mystery. Uh, see if you can agree with my overarching assessment of it. We, we just read it, so it ought to be fresh in your minds. On the one hand, it is a very simple and straightforward passage. Um, most of you already understand this simply by hearing me read it, reading the English words, I think you pretty much get the gist already. It's very basic. It's very foundational. It's right up front. One man, Adam, disobeyed, and the results were bad. And one man, Jesus, obeyed, and the results were good. Now, if you get that, then you basically get the message of the passage. You get the meaning of the passage. But here's where the irony and the mystery comes in. At the same time, it is an intensely complex paragraph and the intricacies of it are bottomless. We would never be able to unravel all of the details in one sermon. And so with that in mind, I'm going to attempt to give you a mixture of simplicity and minutiae. Uh, let's define our terms. Simplicity is defined as simplicity. Minutia means small details, literally minute details. So what I'm going to do to start off is I'm going to make four preliminary observations with small details or minutia. Now, it's going to take a few minutes to do this. You know, my grandkids think I'm funny. I, d I don't actually need you. You know that. Yeah. And then what I'm going to do after we go through the minutiae of the preliminary observations, I'm going to go through the body of the text and I'm going to use a four-point outline forcing alliteration on the text with the letter R and employing in the body of the text a lot of simplicity. And the outline for today for the body of the text is going to be point number one, the results, that is verses 15 and 16, followed by the rain, R-E-I-G-N, in verse 17. Then we're going to look at the righteousness in verses 18 and 19, and then finally, the requirement in verses 20 and 21. But before we get to the body of the text, let me make four overarching preliminary observations which would fall into the category of minutia. Number one, and most notably, there is nothing for you to do in this text. Nothing whatsoever. There are no commands. There is no description of your character, either positive or negative. This passage is about two and only two men, 
Adam and Christ. The text does not deny personal responsibility. It simply does not address it at all. You see, the doctrine of federal headship states that you don't act, rather that someone acts for you as your covenant head or your representative. Paul is not asking you to do something for yourself. He is telling you that you as a passive entity, what has already been done for you by both Adam and Christ. The reason I point this out is because we are people who, when we see a group photograph, always look for ourselves first. Uh, We are individualistic. Uh, We look at a text of Scripture and say, what does this have to do with me? Where am I in the text? And I'm telling you today, do not be a Carly Simon uh, theologian. Carly Simon, you're so vain You probably think this text is about you, don't you? Don't you? It is not about you at all. Paul makes it clear in Romans 5, 15 through 21, that there are only two actors in the play, and they are Adam and Christ. We are impacted by their choices, but we do not contribute ourselves. Number two, in the category of minutia, as the second preliminary observation, This is where most of the minutia lies. Uh, Please note that the passage is very balanced. It is very structured. It is very rhythmic. It's even somewhat poetic. Uh, Let me put the text into its context. Back in chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and death spread to all men. And then he talks about the fact that Adam is a type of Christ. Uh, in that they are similar because both of them acted on behalf of other people. However, not contradicting, but defining that in verses 15 through 21, Paul makes the point repeatedly that that is pretty much where the similarity ends. In other words, our text today is not talking about how Adam and Christ are similar. It is talking about how they are different. Even though Adam is a type of Christ, these two men are actually more different from one another than they are similar to one another. Now, in order to make this point, what Paul does is he sets them up in two columns side by side so that you can look at both of them at the same time, Adam and Christ, that you can see them side by side. Now, this difference that we're going to point out today prompts my title for today, that Jesus is just like Adam, only different. And and, and in a very structured way, in a very intentional way, I want you to notice how these side-by-side comparisons are lined up. Here's an example. We're not going to study verse 15 right now or verse 16. I just want you to look at the structure of these two verses, of verses 15 and 16. Take a look at that. Here's the heading. It says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. Now he talks about Adam. For if many died through one man's trespass, and now he talks about Christ, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Christ Jesus, abounded to many. Again to verse 16. Here's the heading. The free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. In other words, 
there is going to be a difference and the difference is going to come about as a result of that word not, N-O-T, not, they are not the same. First he talks about Adam and he says, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. That's the Adam. Now by contrast, side by side, the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. There is a structure of balance here. Adam is this and Christ is that. Well, in doing this, Paul also balances out the text by using Greek words with identical endings. Now, let me just give a side note here about Greek. I took five semesters of Greek in seminary because I had to. No offense, Billy, because I had to, because I had to. I, I did very well in Greek. In fact, I made A's. However, I was not smart, nor was I wise, uh, nor did I actually learn Greek. In fact, I did not learn anything. I just memorized a lot of information. I went in, I would take the test, and then I would promptly forget everything as soon as the test was over. Now, that is not my professor's fault. I wasn't wise enough 35 years ago to apply myself to retain that skill. So if you hear me preach over any length of time, I don't usually make reference to Greek words. And when I do, I will always consistently give you the correct mispronunciation of those words. I don't know really much about Greek sentence structure, and I don't use it. And the reason I don't use it is because I don't know what I'm talking about. I think it could be said of me, I once knew a little Greek and he owned a gyro restaurant. That's, that's it. Uh, it, 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 I, I'm not good at Greek. In fact, it's all geek to me. My grandkids love me. I don't need you. But, but back to the sermon. There's something in this text that needs to be pointed out about the original Greek words. And that is that there are a series of words in this text which end with the Greek letters mu alpha, or in English, m a, for example, uh, dorima, gift, krima, judgment, kata krima, condemnation, charisma, gift, and there are a few others ending in that M-A, and that was intentional on Paul's part. And here's why Paul did this. Remember that when the book of Romans would have been originally received, it would not have been read visually by everyone in the church, rather it would have been heard by them. One person would have read it, the rest of them were listening to it. And as listeners, you would have picked up on the repeated use of the m sound at the end of about six words and repeatedly. Now, the reason that I point out this minutia it is so that you will see that there is an intentionary, intentional literary rhythm to the text which does not come out in English. Uh, in part, the vocabulary that Paul uses in this text, he uses because of the way that it sounds. And so you see that there is this contrast between Adam and Christ, and there is this m sound at the end of several words. That's part of the minutia. But there's something else you need to see in the in the in the structure of how this is written, and that there is a balance or a parallelism to the text, which necessitates 
that as we read it and as we interpret it, that we must redefine a lot of words. Words like many and all. You see, the words many and all in this text are used by Paul for the purpose of balance and not as absolutes. For example, look in verse 15. If the many died through the one man's trespass. Now, if you're reading that, you have to stop and say, wait a minute. Many didn't die as a result of Adam's sin. Everybody, without exception, died. Uh, Many doesn't mean here most or a lot. It definitely means everybody. And Paul uses many for the purpose of literary balance. We, we know that, that when Adam sinned, everybody died. We know that even from the immediate text back in chapter five, verse 12, where it says, just as sin, uh, through one man's sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all. We know that everybody died in Adam. We know that that is true. But Paul uses many for the sake of literary balance. Here's another example of this in chapter five, verse 18. Paul uses the words all men to refer to justification and life. Now, he does this for balance. Paul is not saying here that all men without exception are going to be justified and have eternal life. He doesn't here refer to every human being as being justified. Uh, This is really important that we note this because if we take all men to be absolute here, the conclusion that we will come to is that of universalism. For if Jesus brings justification and life to all men without exception, then all men without exception will be saved. And if all men without exception are saved, then hell will be empty. The text is not teaching universalism. The text is lined up poetically and rhythmically and with balance. All that to say, recognize going into it that there is a rhythmic, balanced, intentional, rhetorical structure with one overarching point, and that is that Christ and Adam are very different. Here's the third preliminary observation under the category of minutia, and that is that as we pick up our text today in verse 15, we are in the middle of a parenthesis. Uh, back in chapter 5, verse 12, Paul starts with a just as, so also argument. A just as one man sinned and, and death spread to all men. He, he's supposed to pick it up and go so also with the argument. But what Paul, Paul doesn't do that. He gets stuck on the just as and he interrupts himself and he goes off on a trail and then he goes off on a trail off of the trail. And so when by the time we get to our text today, what what we have is is basically a side road of a side road or we have an interruption of an interruption. Paul is not going to get back and finish his thought, which he started in verse 12 until we get to verse 18. We're jumping in as the train is moving in verse 15. Follow the argument. Uh, Paul notes at the end of verse 14 that Adam is a type of Christ. Now, he can't just stop right there and move on. What he has to do 
is he has to now go into a parenthesis and define that. He, he just can't leave us with that thought lest we think that Christ and Adam are similar. Uh, he has to first show us that, that they are mostly dissimilar. And, and that is what is happening in our text today. So as you study today, realize uh, that these verses, for the most part, are a side note or a parenthesis away from the mainstream of the argument. My final preliminary observation under the category of minutia today is that you need to note the use of the much more arguments, the much more arguments. In other words, what Paul is doing here is he is arguing from the lesser to the greater, which was a rabbinic style of persuasion in the ancient Near East. It goes something like this. If X that Adam did is true, and it is, how much more then is what Christ did? In other words, Christ is not matching Adam. Christ in everything that Paul is saying here is much more. It is exceeding Adam. It's as if Paul is writing here, anything you can do, Christ can do better. Christ can do anything better than you. So please pay attention as we go throughout the text of the exceeding abundance of what Christ does beyond that which Adam did. All right. Now, wasn't that minutia fun? Happy Advent. Happy Advent. Let's get on to the body of the sermon. This is the simplicity the simplicity. Point number one, the results. Now we are going to study verses 15 and 16. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. All right, notice at the beginning of both verses that there is a heading to each verse. In verse 15, at the beginning, it says, for the free gift, it's the free gift of Jesus, the free gift is not, keyword being not, is not like the trespass. Whatever the rest of verse 15 is saying, that is the point. It gives you the heading right there. When you get to verse 16, you also have a heading there. And it says, the free gift is not, keyword being not, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. And here with these two headings at the beginning of both verses, you have built-in commentaries or spirit-inspired bottom lines you, you'll notice in most of your Bibles, there, there are headings, like for example, in the ESV, uh, 5, 12 through 21 says, death in Christ, life, uh, death in Adam, life in Christ. That, that is actually helpful and that is accurate. Most of the time, the headings are, are very helpful. None of the headings, however, are inspired. But here in 15 and 16, the headings are inspired by the Holy Spirit. They are supplied by the Apostle Paul, one for each verse. And what is it in these two verses that Paul wants to convey? It's very simple. Here's the simplicity. The results are different. The results are different. 
Adam stands as our representative and he trespasses. That word is used three times. He trespasses the law of God and he sins, verse 16. God says don't and Adam does. So a trespass is is a careless, flippant indifference to the law. You have a no trespassing sign. If I walk onto the property, what I am saying is your sign means nothing to me. I will do as I please. What was the result? Remember, point number one, in the simplicity, the heading is the result. What was the result? Verse 15 says that many died. Now, once again, we know that that many does not mean many. That many means everybody without exception. Many died. First Corinthians 15, 22, in Adam all die. But the result is everybody died. They died spiritually. They're going to die physically. And if something isn't done to correct that, they are going to suffer eternal death in hell. The results speak for themselves. You just have to look around at what sin has done in the world and you have to conclude that it is not good. This could not be more simple. Look at your own heart. Look at what is going on in your life. Look at the sin in your own life and look at how it has messed things up, how it has made you sad, how it has made other people sad. Sin is bad, and and that's all he is saying here. And look at sin that you see in other people, how that has hurt you. And look at the sin that you see in the world. It is bad. And Paul says, with simplicity, it all traces itself back to one man. Now notice, not only does it result in death in verse 15, but look at your Bibles in verse 16. It's not complex. It is simple. There is simplicity here. In verse 16, it tells us that the one man Adam brings about judgment and condemnation. One man sins and the rest of humanity, that is all 100 billion of them, are condemned to an eternal judgment in hell. By contrast, side by side, the result that Christ brings is different. Many, not all without exception, but many, as a result of what Christ has done, are granted the free gift of grace, as it says in verse 15. And notice the emphasis upon free gift. Uh, The word free appears four times in these two verses. The word gift also appears four times in these two verses. The word grace appears twice. Paul is trying to make it very clear that this is not something which we work for. It is free. You cannot earn God's favor. And the result, remember that's point number one, the result of Christ's one act of obedience is a ridiculous amount of grace and free gift to us. It's not merely, remember the what much more argument in the minutia? It's not merely that Christ sets right what Adam does. No, much more, verse 15, we get an abundance, a superabundance of grace and verse 16, justification. In other words, we are declared righteous by God. Not only are we declared righteous, but we are declared to be as righteous as Christ himself. That is absolutely ridiculous. Look at the results. This is really simple. The misery and death and damnation which Adam gave us 
versus and contrasted with the abounding free grace and justification that we get in Jesus. They simply cannot be compared. The results speak for themselves. Which brings us to point number two, and that is the rain, R-E-I-G-N, verse 17, the rain. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, the argument structure, thankfully, is the same. And the word picture that is employed in verse 17 is that of royalty or enthronement of a king. Adam introduced a king into the world, and his name was Death. Now, let's be honest. Death rules very effectively. I hate him. I hate him with all of my heart. I do everything that I can to defy him but he is going to beat me. He, he, he knows what he is doing. He does what he does very well. But much more than the reality of this reigning king called death, there is another monarch that is crowned by Christ, and his name is life. And, and notice how we get this life. Not just by grace, but by an abundance of grace. And, wait, there's more, we get the free gift of righteousness, which is another way of saying justification. And righteousness in verse 17, which we get from the one man Christ, does not mean that we act or behave righteously, although if we are saved, we will act and behave righteously. But what it means is absolute righteousness, which is granted to us perfectly and put on our record. And our status before God is that of absolute impeccable righteousness. And the result, we reign in life. Please note what the verse says. And you have to look at your Bible to get this. It's not ultimately that life is reigning but it's that we will be reigning. Uh, uh, th this reigning is a reference to eternal life because we are not reigning in the here and now, but it is our future hope, 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And I love how Paul switches up the metaphor. He starts off by saying that death is reigning. Then he moves in the end to us being the ones who are reigning. Don't forget how it happens. It happens through the one man, Jesus Christ. Which brings us to point number three, and that is the righteousness, verses 18 and 19. And now remember, this is where Paul gets back on the main highway. He has been on a side road and a side road of a side road, but he now gets back on the interstate, which he left in verse 12. And what does he say to conclude the logic of what he previously says? Well, he says in 18 and 19, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. 
Now, don't you just love the fact that we don't have to do a whole lot of thinking, that there is just an overabundance of simplicity here in that the template has not changed at all. The structure of the argument has not changed at all. Adam and Christ, Adam and Christ. And notice here, as we put them by side, side by side, the simplicity, Adam trespassed and he disobeyed. And the result is that all men became sinners and all men were condemned. Now that is powerful, and that is bad. Give sin its due. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that that is in any way weak or impotent. That is very powerful. But, by contrast, Jesus steps in as our federal head and performs an act of righteousness. One act of righteousness. Now, now don't be confused about this one act of righteousness. It's not just isolated to the cross, but that's what he is talking about here. But leading up to the cross, there had to be a lot of context. There had to be, first of all, there had to be prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. He had to come and fulfill those prophecies. He had to fulfill the law. Then he had to go to the cross. That is the one act. And in that one act, he takes upon himself the sins of God's people and he becomes a curse for them. He goes to the cross, bears the wrath of God, dies for us. Christ died for our sins. He's buried, he's raised again, and he's living to be our savior. But that one act of righteousness with all of this context around it tells us that the gospel is of first importance. Why? Because this one act of righteousness will bring us life, verse 18. And verse 19, it will bring us righteousness. And I will repeat myself, and I care not if I am redundant, for you do need to know once again that the righteousness which we receive from this one man is not our righteous behavior, but it is our righteous standing which we have imputed to us from Christ. I love the second verse of the chorus, knowing you. Now my heart's desire is to know you more, to be found in you and known in as yours, to possess by faith what I could not earn, all surpassing gift of righteousness. Who knew that that chorus was so theologically profound? Knowing you, Jesus, there is no greater thing. For in knowing him, we have the all-surpassing gift of righteousness. One man obeys his father, dies in your place, and when you believe in him, you are eternally righteous in God's eyes. That is simple, but boy, that is rich. Uh, salvation is not only better than condemnation, but remember the much more. It is more powerful, much more. You see, Jesus is better at saving than you are at sinning. Uh, this text is deep and it is detailed, but it is also so simple and so repetitive and so straightforward. Everything bad can be attributed to the one man, Adam. Everything good, that is justification in life and righteousness, can be attributed to the one man, Jesus. And here's the key. The good that Jesus brings is stronger than the force of bad. 
And you might say, wow, uh, I, I see what you're saying here. But to be honest with you, Pastor, I, I know the Lord. I, I'm saved, but I don't feel righteous. And certainly, if you were to look at my life, I, I, I don't live in a righteous manner. Let me just say, if you are in Christ, you actually are righteous in God's sight. That is how powerful the gospel is. For whether or not you feel as though you're righteous or whether you live perfectly righteous, which I know you don't, but whether or not you do is irrelevant. What is relevant is the actual reality in the record book of God, and that is that because of Jesus Christ, you are as righteous as Christ himself. So let me ask you, if you had to take your pick, would you rather feel righteous right now, but not actually be counted as righteous in God's sight? Because that's what the Pharisees did. Oh, they felt very righteous, but they had a righteousness of their own. And they were not righteous in the record book of heaven. Or would you take by faith alone, in Christ alone, actually being righteous in God's book. Let me tell you, I'm going to take the latter. And that's what we have in Christ. That is how powerful the gospel is. Which brings us to the fourth and final point, And that is the requirement. The requirement in verses 20 and 21. Now the word requirement is a bit of a misnomer uh, because the section that I'm going to speak about now is not referring to anything that you are required to do. Uh, I needed an R word to identify the law of Moses and requirement was the best that I could do. So that, that's what we're going to go with. But notice what it says in verses 20 and 21. Now the law, that is the requirement, is the law of Moses. It came in literally in Greek. It means it slipped in or, or it crept in. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also must reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Before we get to the actual analysis of this text, let's remember that as Paul is in now in a section, Romans 5 through 8, speaking about our current status being saved but before we die every portion of this there are it's, it's broken into sections every portion of it ends with the phrase through jesus christ our lord you can look at it it's at the end of chapters five six seven and eight but that's a that's that's another sermon for another day for now what i want you to see is that which paul says concerning the law of moses now, later on in Romans, Paul is going to have a lot more to say about the place of the law of Moses in the life of a believer. This is a precursor to that. Uh, his point in our verses today is that the law did not actually help us, but it hurt us instead. How so? Well, not that the law caused people to commit sin, but the law hurt us in that it gave us an awareness of our sin. Because later in the book of Romans, Paul is going to say in chapter 7, verse 7, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. 
In other words, the law lets you know how bad you really are. If you are trespassing on someone's property and they don't have a sign up or if you can't read, well, guess what? You are still trespassing. However, if someone puts up a sign, no trespassing, and you flippantly wander onto their land disregarding the sign, that's what the law is. The law of Moses was a no trespassing sign. Israel sinned before the law. How do we know that Israel sinned before the law? Because people were still dying before the law came. But when the law came, it made things worse in that it exposed their wickedness. This past week, Anna and I were in England. We were staying at someone's house, went into the bathroom, and as I have finished my shower and I am drying off, I noticed that there on the counter, there is this, this mirror. And you flick on a little light and, the, and, the, and the, the mirror is lit. And then you, you look in the mirror and you flip the mirror over. And oh boy, there is this enlarged, like, like, like reflection of yourself. And I thought, well, let me just, you know, let's just take a look. You don't need to see that because Every flaw is exposed. And I'm looking into this mirror and saying, I hate this mirror because it makes me look old. No, 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 no. The fact of the matter is I am old and I do look old. The mirror, like the law, just exposes what is already there. The mirror is not going to lie to you. Paul says in Romans 5.20 that the law slipped in and made things worse and not better. And in part, it was brought in for that purpose. It says in verse 20, to increase the trespass. Why? Because if you don't know that you're a sinner, you're not going to need a savior. I have never met anybody who has ever gotten saved. Never once in 62 year li- years of life have I ever met anyone who ever got saved who was not first lost. You need to know that you are lost before you can be saved. So, this is the law slipping in to increase the trespass. But here's the beautiful part. Whenever Jesus does something, he does more than just straighten out what has been broken he actually comes in and corrects it and then improves it. Last month marked the five-year anniversary of your pastor setting your church on fire with a Thanksgiving turkey. Here's the good part. We have insurance, and it paid for the renovations. When the construction workers came in and worked on the building, they not only restored what had been destroyed through, I guess we can ultimately say the sin of Adam, but I'll take responsibility for this one, what had been destroyed through your pastor, but in actuality, the construction workers came in and as a result of the turkey burning made things better than they previously were, to which I will say, you're welcome. (laughs) 
Jesus does not just set things straight. He infinitely improves them. In other words, he brings in, when, when there is an increase of sin or an increase of an awareness of sin, you know what Jesus does with that? He administers his grace such that not only is the sin dealt with, but he, on top of that, increases blessings. Uh, verse 20, grace abounded all the more. Jesus doesn't just get us back to where we were. He goes beyond that. In other words, sin causes grace, not only to come in, but sin causes grace to go on steroids. And so, perhaps we can conclude that we should continue to sin, that grace may abound. No, we should not, and we will deal with that next week in Romans chapter 6. But for right now, just know that sin does happen. Little children, I write these things to you so that you do not sin. I hope that you don't, but if anybody does, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We are going to sin. Woe to the world because of tre tre trespasses, for they must surely come. Uh, if we say we have no sin, we are liars and the truth is not in us. I'm not saying that it is okay to sin. It is not okay to sin. However, knowing that you will sin, here is what Jesus is going to do with that sin. He's going to make things better than they previously would have been had that sin not come in. Most of the bad things that happen in this world make things bad and they never get back to a point even of zero. Here's what Jesus does. He takes everything that is bad, all of the sin, and he not only gets it to zero, but as a result of that sin, he amplifies his grace and this grace super abounds. When sin happens, grace comes in to the rescue and gives us more than we initially needed. Verse 21, sin does reign in death. Thanks, Adam. However, Grace trumps sin and reigns through the imputed righteousness of Christ unto eternal life. I remember the first house I ever painted. Uh, for several years, I was a, a house painter. Um, but I remember the first house that I ever painted back in 1979. I had just graduated from high school. I painted this beautiful, old, big, pink and white house. It was owned by a brother and two sisters, uh, all of them elderly, none of them ever married. Um, I did the very best job that I could do, and I did a very good job. Now, at the end of it, a lady came out to me, and she said, how much do I owe you? And I'm just sheepishly saying, okay, when I consider how much money that I, I charged at the paint store and in order to cover my cost and to, to make... Uh, some, a little bit of money before I go off to college this fall. Um, I said, you owe me uh, $643. And I'm just like, <sighs> and she laughs in my face and her brother laughs in my face and her sister laughs in my face and they walk back in the house and she comes out with a check and she hands it to me and it says, exactly $900. That's how she would write her check. Not just $100, but exactly $900. And she hands it to me and I said, wow, this is so kind of you. 
I will, I will go over right now to the Sherman Williams store and I will, I, will, I will pay the bill and this gives me some extra money. And again, all three of them laugh and they say, oh no, we're paying for the paint. This is for you. Exceeding abundantly beyond what I could ask. 1979, 900 bucks is a lot of money for an 18-year-old. The prodigal son says, all right, I made a mess of things. You know what? Let me rehearse the speech. Going back to my dad, maybe I could just get a job. The dad runs to him and kisses him and hugs him and gives him a gold ring and puts a robe on him and has a party for him and he restores sonship to him. Yes, Adam messed things up. We should never take that lightly. Man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. Sin has made a mess of things. But Jesus, through the gospel, not only cures the problem, but he super abundantly adds to that which has been messed up. Much more. He gives the free gift of grace in abundance. He gives justification he causes us to reign in eternal life and he gives us the absolute righteousness of Jesus Christ on our record. If Jesus had just gotten us back to zero, that would have been abundantly kind. And he was under no obligation to do that for us at all. But Jesus takes away our sin and reverses the curse gets us back to zero, and then, embarrassingly, on top of that, he bombards us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You have the church. You have reconciliation. You have Bibles. You're, you've been joined to Christ. Your names are in the book of life. You have been justified. You have all things that pertain to life and godliness. You didn't just get to zero. You got eternal heaven through the one man Christ Jesus. And so with this in mind, if you are unsaved today, what is wrong with you? Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that to be funny, but honestly, what is wrong with you? Why would you want to wait one more second to be loaded down with sin when you can simply go to Jesus Christ and he will more than take care of that for you? He won't get you back to zero. He will do much more than that. If you put your faith in him and call out to him and say, Jesus, save me, there you will experience the delights of this life and the delights for eternity, joy and peace and being right with God. Why? Well, like, what, what are you waiting for? For those of you that are saved, but you're cold and you're distant and you're in compromise and you're flat. And as a result, you are ashamed and you are saying to yourself, I, I just, I can't, I cannot go to him again. I mean, we have been over this so many times. I know better. I, I know that I have lived very sinfully. Okay. You're bad. I'm not going to tell you that you're not. And if you were dealing with anyone else other than Jesus, I'd say you're probably in trouble. However, 
You need to know this, my saved friend. Jesus delights to deal with sin. Look, like he actually enjoys it. It's not his obligation. It is his delight. You bring it to him and you watch him work. They hand you a chicken sandwich at Chick-fil-A and you say, thank you. And they say, my pleasure. Yes, Nathan, they say that, but they don't mean that. You take your sin to Jesus. You hand it to him and he says, my pleasure. It is his delight. God looks at dealing with sin as his delight. He doesn't do it because he has to. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. The joy of what? The joy of forgiving you. He enjoys taking care of your sin. He will forgive you. He will restore you. He will give you joy and peace. He'll cause you to rise up and to help others. You see, the same super grace that saved you will restore you. And so I ask you, like I asked the lost one a few minutes ago, what's wrong with you? I, like, I'm not, I'm not trying to be funny. I, I'm just asking you, what's wrong with you? Why would you want to stay away from a Savior like that? Why would you wait one second longer to confess your sins, knowing that He will abundantly show you grace? You know why He'll do it? because he loves you did you ever love anyone do, do you find it a burden to serve the people that you love now when you serve somebody that you love like you enjoy it jesus loves you he's not just doing this because he has to he, he's doing it because he enjoys it he loves you, and, 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 and I hope you didn't forget that, and I hope that you'll never forget that, and I hope that no, you'll never forget that for the rest of your life, because wherever you slip and how far you may fall, no matter how bad things have gotten, you're going to be okay, and you're going to be helped, and you're going to get home if you just remember that Jesus loves you. This text drives that home. So call out to him, whether saved or unsaved, believe in him because he loves you. All right, five down, 11 to go, which means what? Yeah. Means we're getting there. Oh, Jesus, you, you are so, so wonderful. Lord, please do what you do best. And Lord, do it demonstratively in the lives of the people in this church. Show your mercy and extend your grace because Lord, I know that you love to do it. Lord, for your glory, please do it. Bring us revival. Lord, do it, Lord, and show yourself to be the God who is mighty to save. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.